Okay guys, Shalom. Welcome to Think Jewish. And tonight's class, the title that went out was The Need for Organization in Spirituality. Many of us find that quite the contrary, the organization, I'm sorry, organization is a contradiction, antithesis to spirituality. It kind of dampens it. Uh, we feel that spirituality is more uh, free-spirited. Uh, one of the huge areas where we have this issue is prayer. Many people, to them, prayer, it's difficult for them to experience spirituality in prayer when some rabbis of some 2,000 years ago told you what to say, when to say, when to stand, when to sit. You know, prayer is spiritual moment. It should come from my soul, and no one should be telling me what to say and how to say, and there should be no protocol. So a lot. that's why we're focused tonight on spirituality needs organization. And quite the contrary, the greatest spiritual people that we talk about in the teachings were actually known to be extremely organized. Time schedule, focus schedule, the way you grow from one level to the next level. One of the great examples is, for example, the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov was actually extremely, extremely organized. And the, uh, and the truth is that you can actually see the organization in their teachings. You can see when a teaching is just whatever the spur of the moment comes out, or a teaching is very, very organized. You'll find by each one of the Lubavitcher Rebbe's, starting with the first Lubavitcher Rebbe, extreme organization. If you read the chapters of Tanya, there's an extreme organization. He's taking you from point A to point B to point C. Not only that, there was very, very strict rules on when people came. People would travel from all over to see the Rebbe. They had a lot of times. There were those that only came for this holiday. They couldn't come for any other holiday. And if there was a reason to change it, they would have to send first a letter asking permission to change their allotted time. And it either would or would not be granted. Um, the Alter Rebbe had a very strict system in his yeshiva. The three, there was called the three rooms, the three chadarim. You know, you, you were where you were, you were tested, you were elevated, and it was all very systematic. Um, the older chassidim and the younger chassidim, he had different guides for each and every one of them. And you'll watch every single Rebbe was building more and more in an organized fashion. Most of us kind of feel that any organization, any protocol, any systematic form of approach to spirituality would really dampen spirituality. We feel that the spirituality needs to be open. Most of us, seriously speaking, most of us would associate Woodstock with spirituality more than we would associate the organized Orthodox Yom Kippur prayers with spirituality. And that's just a fact. And what made Woodstock Woodstock was that there was no organization. And what seems to be the problem in our Yom Kippur services is that everything is so organized. So we're going to talk about the need for organization in spirituality. We're actually going to see that a spirituality that does not allow for organization is actually a very bad type of spirituality. And I say the word bad, I shouldn't use the word bad. Let's just say it's not the chosen form in Judaism. Okay? But of course the question always is, what is the connection with this week's Torah portion? You can talk about any topic, any time. 
but we're actually trying to focus on this week's Torah portion. So this week's Torah portion is named after who? Moses' father-in-law. What was Moses' father-in-law's name? Yisro. In English, they pronounce it Yithro. In the Hebrew, it's Yisro. as the S sound. And I want to point out two things. Because seemingly, and appropriately so, this should be the most spiritual Torah portion of all. Why? What do we have in this week's Torah portion? Mount Sinai Revelation, Ten Commandments, the only time that every single Jew together as one people heard directly from God. Other times we didn't have that. We had individuals that were prophets, but we never had the entire Jewish people at one time having such a spiritual moment. And if you remember the Torah portion, you remember that they had to prepare for this. There was three days of separation. There was, whole, there was a whole system there. A preparation. This is the most spiritual Torah portion of all. It was the moment in which we say that every single Jew saw, felt, heard. And yet this Torah portion from A to Z is full of strict rules of organization. Let's start with the first part of the Torah portion, which, by the way, chronologically is not correct. He actually will learn that Rashi tells us that when it says that on the morrow of, the tomorrow of, it actually meant after Moses came down the second, the third time with the second pair of tablets. So we first read what happens way after, the day after Yom Kippur, way after the Ten Commandments, and then we read the Ten Commandments because the Torah does not work in chronological order. However, what is the story there? Yisro sees his son-in-law, Moshe Rabbeinu, being the one, the only one to teach Torah, the only one who would be able to settle disputes in a halachic fashion. And what happens there? He tells him, you're going to fall and the people are going to fall. How do you expect one person to be the center to which 600,000 men Jewish argumentative men are going to come to and wait online with disputes. So he suggests a system. He suggests a very strong organizational system. You'll have a rabbi over 10. You'll have a rabbi over five of these rabbis. You'll have an, and it goes up and up and up. It's a pyramid. That's exactly what he does. He helps Moses create a pyramid, a very systematic pyramid. And when a Jew has a question, he doesn't walk straight over to Moses. He goes to his rabbi, who if he doesn't know, it goes to his rabbi, who if he doesn't know, goes to his rabbi, until the verse states, and Moses said, and that which is difficult that none of you can answer, that you'll bring to me. So here we go, the minute we're becoming a spiritual people, because up to this point, we're really not a spiritual people. We were very occupied with being slaves in Egypt. And it wasn't any spiritual work. So the first moment we're becoming spiritual, the first thing we're told, that the free-for-all is over. There's a system here. You need to know your level in the hierarchy to know who, to who, to who, to who. Number one. Number two. What happens right before the giving of the Ten Commandments? Very strict borderlines. God tells Moses to draw a border around the mountain. This is to where everyone can come. Then there's the elders. 
then there's the priest, then there's the high priest, then there's Moses. They're not all standing on the ground, and they're not all standing on the, on the mountain. Everyone has their very specific spot. And you need to prepare yourself, and you need to know up to where you can go. And then when everything is all beautiful, the Jews said, we will do and we will hear. And God told them, you will be a nation of, of uh, kingly priests. All those beautiful romantic moments, and we're about to do it. What's the last thing God tells Moses again? Go down and remind them again that they each have a line to where they can go. And God tells Moses, but they can't go any further because I already told them what you said. And God tells Moses, go down again and tell them. If you ask me what the reason for that was, it's just because sometimes in that very romantic situation of spirituality, we sometimes forget borders. So yeah, they knew that they weren't supposed to pass this line, but there were some very romantic moments. You're going to be my chosen nation. You're going to be onto me, a segula. You're going to be the kingly, priestly, everything. So when you get that way, borders seem to fall away. So God tells Moses, let him know. Romantic or not romantic, a border is a border. You don't spread, you don't cross that line. I told you you can't go on the mountain, you don't go on the mountain until the chauffeur ends. So there's so much in this most spiritual Torah portion, there's such a strong emphasis on something which seems to be so anti-spiritual. Whenever we think of spirituality, whenever we think of this, it's always this loving equality, no separation, no separation of gender, no separation of levels of spirituality, levels of knowledge, because it seems to be that spirituality needs to have unity. And the more you make it complex, the less spiritual it seems to be. And that's why this Torah portion, out of all Torah portions, which is talking about the ultimate spiritual moment of the Jewish people, it's so full of very clear definitions and boundaries. So let's talk about this. In the Ten Commandments, there are some very interesting teachings, right? We know that the Jewish people only heard two of the Ten Commandments directly from God. And then because they were having what we call short-circuiting, their souls were leaving the body, too much energy, the spark got too close to the mother flame and it kept on leaving and they had to be resurrected again and again and again. And therefore what happens? They come running to Moses and they tell Moses what? You talk to God and you tell us. So first of all, right here is where the Jewish people accepted that spirituality needs to have a system. Not everyone can be having this type of revelation that Moses lives with on a day in and a day out situation. So the Jewish people understand that. Then what happens? Very interesting teaching. Why did the Jewish people hear the two commandments? So there's a Kabbalistic teaching that says that all the 248 positive commandments of thou shall do, right? Thou shall keep Shabbat, thou shall, all the do's. Not that thou shall not work on Shabbat, that's a prohibition. All the commandments, according to Kabbalah, all the 248 thou shalls are all hidden in the first of the two commandments. I am God your God, 
is a positive statement, and in that positive statement is hidden all the 248 thou shall do's. Then there's 365 prohibitions. All those 365 prohibitions all lie hidden, according to Kabbalistic teachings, in the thou shall not have no other God. So all the 248 do's is hidden in the first commandment, and all the 365 don'ts are hidden in the second commandment, which means that when the Jewish people heard the first two commandments, they actually heard all 613 commandments. However, they heard it in the collective sense. They heard the 248 do's in the collective, I am God, your God. They heard the 365 prohibitions in the collective, thou shall not have any idols. Okay? Just to let you know, it gets even more interesting than that because we then told that the do not have any idols is part and parcel of I am God, you God. If I'm God, then nothing else is God, then don't have idols. So really, the two is hidden in the one. Then it gets even more Kabbalistic that says that the entire I am God, you God who took you out of Egypt is hidden in the word Anochi, I. Then it gets more Kabbalistic that the entire word Anochi is hidden in the Aleph. It gets more Kabbalistic. If you know how the Aleph is made up, there's a top Yud, a bottom Yud, and the line. Everything's hidden in the top Yud. And if you want to even get most Kabbalistic of all, in the Yud that's written in the Torah, there's a line that goes up that's called the crown. Everything is really hidden in the crown. Why am I sharing this with you? Because it is true that the minute you engage in complexity, you've descended from the higher spiritual to the lower spiritual. That is true. The more complex you get, the more details you're getting, the more, if I'm going to use the exact words in Kabbalah, the more you're diminishing the light and the more you're building the vessels. Take, for example, in your senses. The power of sight is what we call chachma, wisdom. The power of hearing is understanding. And what's interesting is that what's the difference between seeing and hearing? One of the differences that you see the entire painting in one shot. You cannot hear more than one word at a time. So the power of sight, because it's more spiritual, is collective. The power of hearing, because it's less spiritual than wisdom, less spiritual than sight, therefore it's not collective, it's more detail-oriented. In the same level of intellects, wisdom, the right side of your brain, sees things collectively and gets straight to the inner essence, while the left side of your brain, which is understanding with his methodology, that is detail, 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 detail. Now, understand that even though I just shared with you the teachings of Hasidus and Kabbalah, how really all the, all the details, all 613 commandments with all their details and rabbinical offshoots, 
is really all hidden in that dot on top of the yud, the top part of the olive, of the word anochi, of the first commandment, of the first two commandments, of the ten commandments, of all the mitzvot. Yet nevertheless, it in itself is useless. Because if Torah was given for us to know down here how God wants me to live, what do I have from the ultimate spirituality of the top dot of the Aleph of the Anochi? I need the details. I need to know the practical do's and the don'ts. So any time that I'm avoiding complexity because I want to feel the spirituality and the spirituality lies in the simplicity, I am actually separating myself from the ultimate plan and gift of any spirituality at all. Because spirituality is worthless if it does not drive me to be connected to God. And the only way to be connected to God is through mitzvah, because the word mitzvah means connection. So the same thing is going to follow. If you just learn the five books of Moses, you do not begin to know how to keep Shabbat, how to wear tefillin, what tefillin look like, how to keep kosher. So even though the five books of Moses is the holiest of all holiest, and the five books of Moses is where we feel the divinity more than anywhere, when you, start start, uh, when you start studying Talmud, you kind of lose that spirituality feeling. Because the rabbis are arguing and questions and answers and proofs. It looks like you're in a, in a school for law. It doesn't feel that spiritual. When you study Baba Kama, Baba Matiya, Baba Basra, when you learn the laws of damages, you learn the laws of fine and loss, you, lo you learn the laws of real estate, you don't feel spirituality. You have whole laws of court cases. This one lied, now you know, this one lied. This one has a migui. If I wanted a lie, I could have said a bigger lie. This seems to be understanding the details of law together with the psychology of the human being. That's what Talmud really feels like when you're studying it right. And yet you understand that if you studied the Pasuk, the verse in the Torah, Without the Mishnah, without the Talmud, without the next step of the Jewish codifiers, the great Rambam. When you don't study that, you don't know what to do. Take, for example, a simple, a simple example. When you talk about tefillin, what does it say in the Torah? It says four times the mitzvah of tefillin. And none of them give you any clue at all of what villain are made of, what villain look like, how they should be put on. And you shall bind a sign upon your head, hand, and you shall place a remembrance between your eyes. You have no idea. Not only that, one of the biggest problems Jewish people had in the history of the Torah is that there were those who refused to listen to the sages and they wanted to do exactly what it says in the verse which is exactly not what God wants you to do. Because the verse says, put it between your eyes, which would be right here at the bridge of your nose. It says, put it on your hand. Halakhically speaking, from the wrist down is your hand. We don't put it on our hand. We put it on our arm. We don't put it on in between our eyes. 
in between our eyes is just telling us where left and right is, but it actually has to go by the hairline. And this goes on and on and on. If you study the verse on Shabbat, you have no idea how to keep Shabbat. You shall not do work. What's work? If you learn the laws of slaughtering, Shechita, which defines whether it's a kosher animal or not a kosher animal, there's not a single place in the Torah that it defines at all the laws of Shechita. But there's nothing more spiritual than studying the exact words that God dictated to Moses. And yet, studying just that without bringing it down a lower level, a lower level, a lower level until we get to completely engaging human intellect the process of the Talmud and we don't know what Judaism is. We don't know how to be connected to God. So now I'm sharing with you from above below. From the Word of God to us knowing what God's telling us to do is from the dot to the two-dimensional frame to the three-dimensional box, detail after detail after detail. Parathetically speaking, just that you can understand this. Torah, the five books of Moses, is called the seed of God. Talmud is called the womb. The DNA ladder that lies hidden in the male seed is useless without the nine months process of the womb. Because even though you have everything there, you have nothing. The power of the child lies in the DNA ladder. But you're not going to find any DNA ladders walking up and down Biscayne Boulevard. There's a process. And that's how we explain it exactly with the Word of God. The five books of Moses is the seed. However, if you don't go through the process of the Mishnah and the Talmud, dissecting every single detail hidden in that DNA, you won't know what to do. You won't know how to live. So from top down, you'll watch always in spirituality, you'll watch in top down, it's always from the simplistic to the complex. You have the supernal crown, which is simplistic, and you get into the ten emanations. You go from the world of Atzilut, which is simplistic, into the very complex and detailed world of creation, formation, and action. Also in your life, as a child, you're going from the simplistic faith, you just simply, a child has faith. And as you get older, you're going to have to be able to bring to peace the faith and the intellect. And the faith that remains, that childish faith that cannot connect with the intellect and you're not going to be a functioning Jew. So from top down, you always go from simplicity into very, very detailed, organized evolution. And that's what a lot of Kabbalah is. We talk about Kabbalah studying the anatomy of God. Not that God has an anatomy. But what we have to understand is that from the infinite to the finite, there's a whole evolution. And the more we understand that evolution, the more our relationship with God 
is three-dimensional and thick. Not just a shaky little, yeah, I believe. What do I believe? I don't know what I believe. God, God's omnipotent. God can do anything. We don't use that answer. In Kabbalah Siddhis, we don't use that answer. God can do anything until we've exhausted every detail that we could extrapolate. And it's amazing. Kabbalah that talks about the greatest faith is the one that pushes off that answer until we have no choice. Let me go to the human being now. And then I want to go to the bridge in between. The human being is the same way. The faith that gets frazzled by organized religion is a faith that will not long endure. If my faith in God and my Jewishness gets frazzled every time I open up the code of Jewish law, then that faith is a very shallow faith. If I can only believe a God, a very omnipotent, abstract God, who's not finicky whether I eat lobster or gefilte fish, then that's a very weak faith. Because that means that that abstract God has very little, if anything, to do with my day-to-day -day life. The God that I only come to on Yom Kippur in the holiest of moments and connect on some abstract, simplistic soul connection is a God that I don't live with. It's quite the contrary. The reason why I feel that God always loves me and the reason why I feel that God is always with me is because of my specific details in how I behave because of my faith in God. Were I not to have this very detailed how I eat, how I dress, how I speak, if I didn't have that, then my relationship between God and me would be very encompassing and circular. It wouldn't be practical and linear. Now, knowing that my life is based on details, what's that saying? Devil lies in the details. It's always about the dotting your I's and crossing your T's. If I wouldn't have that, if all I can say about my God is animamin, I'm a good Jew. Why am I a good Jew? Animamin. I believe in God. You understand that the relationship between God and me is my faith, in God. But it's not my practical walking like that poem footsteps. It's not me walking on the beach with God. Because God and me have a very abstract relationship connection. So understand that when we start talking about I believe in God. Really? You believe? Yeah, of course I believe in God. What do you believe about this God? What do you mean what I believe about God? God created heaven and earth and the whole thing. Really? So you believe that the world's 5,774 years old and was created in six days? Well, I don't know about that. You know, we have scientific proof with Darwin. But I believe in God. So you believe that God allows us to eat certain things and not? Oh, come on. Really? Really? That huge, big God really cares about those details? 
So you understand, in our spirituality, for us, for us to have a real spirituality, it's got to be able to come down in details. It's got to be able to come down in behavioral patterns. Now why? Let's talk about that third level. The bridge in between. Our soul, we're taught, is made up of two basic levels. Yeah, it's five. I want to break it into two levels. The two levels we're going to talk about is essence and expressive. The essence of the soul is untouchable. We don't know what it is. It's not even the subconscious because the subconscious and the conscious have a relationship. It, it's just essence. It's that thing about Jews that are just illogical. The Jew who never kept anything, no laws, no nothing, but all of a sudden was willing to die for God. Those, those totally irrational moments in our life. And then there's expressive. What's the expressive part of our soul? The expressive part of our soul is the intellect, the emotions, and the thought, speech, and action garments. So we have the organs, which is the intellect and the emotion. We have the garments, the thought, speech, and action. Now, the essence is untouchable, undescribable, and then there's all the details of the anatomy of the soul. Now, let me share this with you. When you talk about the essence, in Yiddish they call it pintalayid, in Spanish they call it chispa de judio, whatever word you're going to use for it. There is a type of essence which cannot, cannot tolerate details. There's a type of essence which once you get into details, you're chasing it away. Because by definition, essence is non-descriptive, no form, no shape. And the minute you start getting into the details of the soul, the anatomy of the soul, it's no more the essence. That essence, which does not connect to the details, is a very weak essence. Let me share what I mean by that. When you are paralyzed by the essence moment of your life, when you just go into this total spiritual shock, you had a revelation, I, I don't even know how to talk about it, I, I, I just, it's just overwhelming. I had a spiritual revelation, epiphany, I'm just sitting there like, I don't want to move, I don't even want to breathe because I don't want to lose it. When you have that type of spiritual moment that denies for you to be able to connect it with your details, that paralyzation of the spirituality is disconnecting you with God instead of connecting you with God. Let me say that again so we have a clarity here. The type of spirituality, that essence moment, that total overwhelming revelation that leaves you speechless and paralyzed. That is a type of essence spirituality you do not want to experience. That's a type of revelation that doesn't help you in your relationship with God. It doesn't connect you. It doesn't allow you to grow. It rather leaves you in total spiritual shock. However, 
there is a spirituality, an essence spirituality, where instead of denying and negating detailed expression, it actually becomes the very essence of the detail. Let me share with you. I said this on Yom Kippur for those of you who remember. Chabad has this very unique custom that when we talk about our sins, we have sinned, we have rebelled, we actually sing it. Ah, yeah, 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 This comes, this whole thing comes from a student of the Baal Because the Baal always demanded joy, joy, joy. So even this, he sang with joy. So they went and they snitched on him to his teacher, the Baal and said, listen, joy, ahin, joy, ahead. It's all beautiful. But you don't dance in front of God, a horror, singing to him how I rebel against you, how I died. <laughs> you just don't do that. You know, everything has to have an appropriate emotion. When you talk about your sins, you shouldn't be singing. So the Baal Shem Tov called in his student and said, this is what I've heard about you. I heard that when you talk about your sins and when you confess your sins to God on Yom Kippur, you're singing. How can that be? And he answered as follows. Tell me, the servant who was hired to clean out the palace of God, should he not be whistling and singing while he's working? And then he continued. Am I, as a Jew, not one of the chambers of the palace of God? So yeah, my sins mean that I'm dirty. But when I'm cleaning myself from my sins, am I not cleaning God's palace? And if I'm cleaning God's palace, should I not be singing? So this comes from an essence relationship which says that even when I sin, I am still the palace of God. That's where this comes from, right? Because without this teaching, we would have thought that when you sin, you're cut off from God. You were kicked out of the palace. But this student of Baal Shem Tov, having an essence relationship with God, meaning that it's unconditional, meaning that even when I sin, I am the palace of God. A dirty palace. I made a mess here. But I am the palace of God. And what does he do with this? He doesn't get overwhelmed. He doesn't break down in shame and paralysis. Neither from the fact that he is forever connected to God. Neither from the fact that he has dirtied the palace of God. Rather, what does he do? He brings it down into the practical. The very practical action. A, I need to clean up the mess. That's what confession is all about. That's what teshuva is all about. B, when I do clean up the mess, I need to know what I'm really doing. I am cleaning a chamber of the palace of God. Thus I sit in joy. The Rebbe once spoke as follows. They asked the Rebbe of blessed memory, why do you so engage with the simple Jews? The Rebbe sits and teaches, and you learn the teachings of the Rebbe. They're unbelievably scholarly and all single avenues of the Torah, whether it be Halakha, whether it be Talmud, whether it be Kabbalah, whether it be Hasidut, whatever you touch, 
the Rebbe has scholarly teachings. Why is the Rebbe standing Sunday giving out dollars to every type of Jew in every walk of life, spending an entire day of his dealing with simple Jews? Why? The Rebbe answered the question. You know what the Rebbe's answer was? From the great geniuses, what do I have from them? Every time I need something done, their great connection, their great intellect, their great, it all paralyzes them. These people, very simple. They feel connected to me. They feel I'm a teacher. I tell them what to do. They do it. They bring back a report. And yalla, we go on. The spirituality that doesn't have organization, that doesn't work in building blocks, the overwhelming shock of essence that doesn't come down into workable details doesn't work. We males over here are outnumbered by women, so let's talk women language. The male who completely loves you and cannot stop telling you that he loves you but cannot stop doing what he wants to help you do what you want. What do you feel about that relationship? I mean, he's unbelievable. He sits and looks at you with such Google eyes, just in total awe and shock of his total love for you. But ask him to go shopping tomorrow for you. What is that worth? What's about the person in your life who totally loves you but is a complete schlamazel? And every time you have an appointment with him to go do something, look into something, whatever it may be, this schlamazel just isn't organized. Loves you to death. I'm going to quote a movie to you people. Any of you people watched Mr. Doubtfire? You know what I'm talking about? The one complaint she never had about him was if he loved her or not. That wasn't the problem there. The problem was he was childish. He just didn't know how to bear responsibilities. He didn't know how to be a breadwinner. He didn't know how to be a disciplinarian. That was his problem. His problem was that he was just a total spiritual, emotional mush. Now that's great while you're in college and you're dying for attention. It's not so great when you need to build a life together. We need to put away a little financial nest. We got to get your kids through college. So you understand that spirituality without organization is only so good until you hit the real world. As long as mom and pop is putting you through school, all you want is the guy who can't stop staring at you and loving you and everything. But once that paycheck ends and now you got to get out there, you know, after the I do's, when you get off the altar, you can't deal with a spirituality that denies organization. It's going to drive you bonkers. Even though that the entire spirituality is about how much he loves you. <laughs> You're not getting anywhere with that love. That and 250, it gets you on the New York train. It's the same with God. It's very good to be spiritual. It's very good to have absolute abstinence from any physical pleasure. 
We're going to the monastery. We're going to become the, uh, what's it called? The Shaozen priest. <laughs> That's great. But God isn't building a world with that. God isn't building a people. And God isn't bringing the world to its true purpose. And the same with you and I. The spirituality which denies complexity, it only can live in absolute paralysis of simplicity, is not the type of spirituality which you want to engage. It's not going to get you to where you know God wants you to be. And that's why in this very Torah portion, where we have the ultimate spiritual revelation that we ever had, never before and never again after, it's so full of systems. It's so full of complex details. Because spirituality in essence that par paralyzes is not the one that God wants you to engage with. You will remember the four sages that went into the garden. One died. One lost his mind. One left the religion. Rebbe Kiva went in and out with peace. And the Rebbe explains why. If you look at the detailed words of the Talmud, Rabbi Kiva went in in peace and went out in peace. And the Rebbe says, everyone went in in peace. Not everyone went out in peace. But everyone went in in peace. And the Rebbe says, no, listen to the Talmud. There was only one person who went into the world of shedding for no other reason than to come back into the details so much, so much more enriched and enriched and inspired. Rabbi Akiva went in in order to come back out a more committed and spiritual working Jew. The rest were intrigued by the bliss of the garden and its spirituality. They didn't make it out alive. They didn't make it out wholesome, let's say. So once again, your spirituality that gets frazzled by the details the one that wants to just be able to hum into oblivion and just stay lost there forever is not Jewish. The one that you experience that um, you're touched by the essence of the spirituality, the total loss in love, but that now drives you to go make a difference. That's the spirituality that's organized, demands details, demands structure, that's the Jewish spirituality. Thank you.